This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. Yes, like all those famous authors told you, this is Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon, and we are back for a new season after a little break. But Steve, we are back with a vengeance. You know it, buddy. On this episode, Steph Post explains how she describes us to others. Tiny dinosaur raptor children that would kill me if they were a little bit bigger. And bestseller Greg Hurwitz gives us a new slogan for the show. My crass incompetence is covered by the help of other people, like far more sophisticated and intelligent than I am. That was kind of him. I, th- I think that suits us perfectly. <laughs> I think he nailed it. <laughs> Plus, we talked to debut author S.A. Cosby, and we hear why comics are the perfect medium for crime stories. All that is brought to you by our sponsor, Rare Bird Books. Some Rare Bird titles Writer Types listeners would enjoy include The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane by Rex Weiner, Flamingo Coast by Martin J. Weiss, and Raylan Goes to Detroit by Peter Leonard. You can find out more about their excellent crime and mystery fiction at rarebirdbooks.com. Excellent. So, Steve, in this long break we had, did you read any good books? I read so many books, but because we were going on hiatus for a couple of months, I decided to take a break from crime and mystery fiction. Uh I wanted to kind of clear my head a little bit, so... You know me really well, Eric. I ended up reading a bunch of books about bands. I started with the Beastie Boys book, which is kind of a bouillabaisse base of hilarious and touching firsthand stories about the arc of the band's career from their sort of scrappy punk beginnings in New York to growing up and becoming elder statesmen in the rap and alternative rock worlds. I read Jeff Tweedy's memoir, Let's Go So We Can Get Back, which if you're a fan of Wilco is a must read. Uh, I devoured a really fascinating biography about Guided by Voices frontman Robert Pollard. That book's called Closer You Are. And most recently, I just finished the 33 and a third book about Jawbreaker's 24-hour revenge therapy. And I'm not even telling you about the other five books about bands that I read. But, Eric, but in the last week, I started Coyote Songs by Gabino Iglesias. I was a big fan of his first book, Zero Saints, so... I was thrilled to get my hands on this new one. Uh, Coyote Songs is a dark and unforgiving and kind of magical book that takes a long, hard look at the brutal realities of life in the American Southwest. Uh, I thought the writing in Zero Saints was great, but Iglesias has really leveled up with this new one. It's, it's a great read. How about you, Eric? What have you been reading? Well, uh, like you, I had the time to read a lot of books. And one of the things that I took on was uh, as sort of a New Year's resolution, I think, is I- I'm catching up on the Jack Taylor series by Ken Bruin. I'm a huge, huge fan of Bruin, and I had fallen behind on the Jack Taylor books, primarily because there's so freaking many of them. <laughs> but So I vowed to uh, to catch up and, and, and get back up to speed. So uh, I've, I think I've read three of those in the last month. I love them so much. They're absolutely great reads. They're 
brutal. <laughs> he puts Jack through. Oh my God, does he drag this guy down? So, <laughs> but then most recently, uh, just last weekend, we had a couple of events uh, with Sam Gailey. One of my favorite books of 2014 was his first novel, Deep Winter, and his new one, The Guilt We Carry. I picked up at these events, immediately jumped into it. Uh, I'm about halfway through, and oh man, it's great. It's just scratching all of my noir itches. So, uh, really digging that one. Well, we should have him on the show. Oh, hey, that's right. We are. <laughs> Tune in next time. <laughs> Eric, I know your memory is slipping, but uh, if you recall, way back when we started the show, one of our first guests ever was Steph Post. Oh, yes. We loved her writing then and we love it now. So when she published what has been, I got to say, probably the buzz book of 2019 so far, Oh, we knew we had to have her back. Well, Steph Post, you have been a busy woman since last we spoke. You wrote another in your series about the Cannon family, and now this uh, slight departure of a novel, Miraculum. But to hear you talk about it, it sounds like this book nearly killed you. But is the torture of writing just kind of your process? Pretty much I'm a masochist. Like when it comes to writing, th there's nothing like pleasurable about it. I mean, there is, there's those great moments of brilliance, but yeah, it's mostly like trudging through the swamp. I am not a good motivational speaker. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but yeah, this is my, um, Miraculum is sort of my, my, I call it my cursed book because it has my heart, but it was a little bit of a trial to, to bring it to life and get it published. So it's here and this is, it's exciting. Well, I mean, congratulations. Uh, the reviews have been fantastic so far. Which brings us to our next question. Y you seem to have become a part-time chicken farmer. Uh, why <laughs> what are some of the things you like to cook with all those eggs that you're harvesting? Um, and I don't even really like eggs that much. <laughs> oh, here we go again. Okay, last time you were on, you admitted that you didn't like tree. <laughs> now you don't like eggs, don't. but you... How, when, why do you have chickens? Why do I live in the woods surrounded by trees that I don't like? <laughs> <laughs> Writing books that almost kill you. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm a tortured soul. Um, I like deviled eggs. Those yeah. those are good. Because <laughs> you're a housewife in the 50s? Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> wow. No, my chickens are, I mean, they lay eggs, which is awesome, but they're really, they're really my pets. They're they're kind of like my children now, like like tiny dinosaur, baby dinosaur raptor children that would kill me if they were a little bit bigger. I look at my kids that way sometimes. But it's so true. <laughs> I really wish I could um, record them for you because you know the original Jurassic Park, the raptors, the sound they make, especially in like the kitchen scene. That's what these chickens sound like. And they make this like, type of sound <laughs> that's what they sound like wow they're these like medieval beasts it's it's awesome i love them <laughs> well steph from the first time i met you i said to myself well she seems like carny folk <laughs> <laughs> what was it about a carnival in the 1920s that fascinated you and eventually turned into miraculum 
Okay, I'll be 100% honest. I really wish I had a cool carnival story. Like, I wish I could say, like, I grew up in a carnival. I probably have carnies in my family, and I just don't know. Um, like, that would so not surprise me. But I don't even have a cool story. I've never been to the circus. I know, I'm I'm bad researcher. But what did it, and, and this happens all the time with me, is the very first, okay, so I grew up without a television, basically. And the very first time I saw like a show, like an HBO show was um, about 10 years ago. And it was Carnival, which is one of the best HBO shows, one of the best shows ever. And I mean, I just watched the DVDs over and over. And I just was so in love with that world. Well, Steph, if you ran away to join the Carnival tomorrow, what do you think your (laughs) act would be? Oh, they used to have um, all these crazy acts, right? And um, one of them would be like a chicken trainer. They had where you could train chickens to like do math. And I've seen videos of like one playing a little tiny piano, um, doing all kinds of tricks. And I have the dogs. So I was thinking I could do like a whole chicken dog show and I could be a chicken magician and it would be amazing. That's what I'm going to do, you know, if the writing thing doesn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Eric and I would obviously be a freak show. Uh, What do you think that Eric and I would do together at the carnival? Clown act, maybe? Um, That's the first thing I'm seeing. Either that or like, or like the people that get shot out of cannons. I could do that. I'll I'll get shot out of a cannon and Steve, you catch me. Nope. Well, at least uh, we were correct in the assumption that her first uh, thing that she went to was clowns. That sounds about right. <laughs> That's because I asked the question. <laughs> Came out of nowhere. <laughs> Who could have guessed? Well, now, Steph, how can you reassure the fans of your previous novels that a book like Miraculum isn't too different and it's, it's still something that a Steph Post fan is going to love? Really good question. And I would say this, the style... The, of Miraculum is, is a lot like the style of books like Lightwood, A Tree Born Crooked, Walk in the Fire. The setting is different. Um, the time period's different. The, you know, there are the supernatural elements to Miraculum that push it into the, the fantasy realm and also the horror realm a little bit. But it's still written with the characters as the essential part of the book. Um, which is something that's I think runs through all my work. And it's also a story about outsiders. It's a story about the misfits that are on the fringe. And instead of being, you know, criminals living in backwoods, Florida, trying to make their way, they are, you know, performers in a traveling carnival who are also very much marginalized and on the fringe. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. There you go. Well, uh, you've also been creating art prints to go along with the novel, um, yeah. which is a sort of obsessive thing to do. You're going deeper and deeper with this story. Do, do you feel like writers need to be a little obsessed with the worlds that they create? Yes. I actually tell my, my students, you have to love the book and the story you're creating so much because you are going to be stuck with it for a very long time. I wrote Miraculum three years ago, and uh, it's just now coming out, and I've had to completely you know, immerse myself in that world again. And the artwork's kind of been part of that. So all kind of worked out. So uh, so when you go on book tour, are you taking the chickens with you? Uh, I want to. 
Like, I, I really wish I could just, so I'm leaving for New York City um, next week. I've never been. I'm not a city person at all. And I hate flying and I hate the cold. So I'm flying to New York City in the dead of winter next week. <laughs> and I was thinking I could, you know, totally bring along Blanche or maybe Persephone uh, as my emotional support chicken and bring her on the plane. Um, they're both trained to sit on my shoulder and they're totally chill. I, I really want to cut to scene of the rural Florida writer arriving in New York for the first time holding a chicken. And the first New Yorker that meets her saying, is this your first time in New York? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it so might happen. It, it, you know. <laughs> How could you tell? Oh, well. <laughs> the chicken on your shoulder. <laughs> and the thing is, is that here it would be pretty normal. I mean, it would be kind of a normal thing to, to be walking down the road in Brooksville with a chicken on your shoulder. Or a python, or a goat. I mean, that that's just a normal thing here. This is why Florida wins. <laughs> Always. You know, Eric, you and I have been dancing around the idea of starting a, a midlife crisis band, and I'm pretty sure Emotional Support Chickens is the name of that band. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> we got signed? <laughs> well, Steve, as you know, Crime writing is more than just novels. Yeah, one of the most popular styles of crime writing these days are crime comics. And so for our unpanel this time, we gathered crime comic authors to tell us why they think crime and comics are a perfect blend. My name is Fred Van Lenty. I write a lot of comic books, including uh, X-Men Noir and Weird Detective. And I've also written mystery novels like Ten Dead Comedians and Con Artist. And I think that the main reason comics work so well in the genre is because if you have a really skilled comic storyteller, the images they're going to be coming up with and showing you are going to be very specific. And I think crime fiction very much is in the details. It's on the drum of the rain, on a rooftop. It's about a particular look. It's about the pattern of a, of a particular tire on the pavement. Uh, John D. McDonald had a great bit of writing advice that always take one specific element of a room. Uh, in one of his crime novels, he talks, he describes a hotel room simply by talking about the metal logo of an air conditioner, of an old kind of run-down air conditioner vibrating. And comics are very good at doing that. Uh, probably, you know, my favorite crime graphic novel is Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell. And what I remember that are very specific images. Like there are these grapes that, that Gull feeds his victims. And I just remember the grapes in his hand. I remember the hat in his head. And all these sort of specific details that comic book artists, the good ones at least, are, are really great at evoking. Krista Faust here, co-author of the gritty urban noir comic series Peeplands along with Gary Phillips and, you know, a bunch of other books and shit. Okay, so why does crime fiction work so well in comics and graphic novels? Well, classic film noir was a very stylized form of filmmaking. I mean, sure, there's action and chases and fights, but so often crucial moments were essentially stills, composed almost like a series of pulp covers. The panel structure of comics is very friendly to small details. A facial expression as a trigger is pulled. 
the exact second of betrayal or realization that the protagonist has been fucked over. The reader can really dwell on these critical character-revealing micro-moments in the narrative, which is great for me since I've always been less interested in the whodunit than the whydunit. Hi, I'm Jeff Rugby, the writer and creator of Gunning for Hits, a comic book series that's set in the New York music business of the 1980s. Naturally, there's a crime element because it's set in the New York music business of the 1980s. I want to talk a little bit about how comics and crime fiction work great together. Um, first of all, it's prose and pictures, so uh, you're getting the best of uh, the worlds of, of prose fiction and uh, of film. But you get to have some shortcuts. Uh, for instance, I can set up a scene in a comic book without having to write paragraphs and paragraphs about what the character looks like and what the setting is. And the other thing uh, that's great is you can mess with the reader's head because if a reader's reading a scene, uh, they fill in the spaces between the panels. So from panel one to panel two, the reader's going to assume he's seeing the same scene. But as the writer, artist, or whatever, you can actually jump ahead in time or back in time and not reveal that uh, to the reader until later on, which is a good way to mess with their heads, uh, something that I think crime fiction should always be trying to do. Thanks for listening, and if you're not reading a great crime comics, get out there and find them. There's some awesome ones like Criminal by Ed Brubaker, and of course, um, Gunning for Hits is pretty magnificent in its own right. Hey, this is Alex Segura, writer of the Pete Fernandez Mystery Series, which was nominated for an Anthony Award. Why does crime fiction work so well in comics and graphic novels? It's the visuals. Like film, you can really hammer home the style, like a noir film, using uh, different kind of stylistic touches that, you know, you, you just can't do in prose. I think prose, you have to go through the mind's eye and hope your reader connects with the picture your words paint. But with comics, you get that literal visual on the page, and I think you see it most clearly in books like Stray Bullets or Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, other noir pieces like Hundred Bullets and uh, You Can Never Go Home. So I think comics are a perfect medium for crime and I hope to see more crime comics bubble to the surface. Steve, that was interesting because everyone had a slightly different take, but there was a lot of agreement there, despite the fact that on our unpanel, we don't tell anybody who else is answering the question or what they're going to say. So this is all purely from their brains, exactly what they think. And I think we, we have a consensus here. Yeah, I don't know. You say consensus. I say collusion. I think they were chatting behind our backs. <laughs> Those crafty comic book people. <laughs> Well, Steve, one of my favorite thriller series going right now is the Orphan X series by Greg Hurwitz. Now, Greg is an accomplished writer, and this series is his most popular to date. And he even, since we recorded his interview, hit the bestseller list for the first time with his latest Orphan X thriller, Out of the Dark. Lucky for us, Greg took some time out of his busy schedule to talk. Uh, but ironically, this author of high-tech thrillers couldn't figure out how to hook up the microphone to his computer. So naturally, we recorded the whole thing. <laughs> well, that cracks me up, Greg, uh, that we had the technical difficulties getting to this point because uh, these are probably some of the biggest high-tech thrillers that I've read in recent years. 
I fake it, man. I'm so incompetent. It's unbelievable. <laughs> this the, the little the office you're in is very different from Evan's uh, little inner sanctum that I've been reading about. <laughs> kind of, but I will say that the desk here is the is hammered sheet metal, which is designed after his desk in the vault. Oh, nice. <laughs> so. Greg, Evan Smoke is back in his fourth Orphan X thriller. And when you first wrote about Evan, did you know right away, oh, this is a serious character with legs? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, it took me 16 books to reach this guy or 15 novels. This was my 16th book was Orphan X. And I really had to wait until I figured out who was a character who I wanted to live with you know, not just that year in that book, but the next year in the next book and the next year in the next book. You know, I spend more waking hours in a book than I do with my wife and kids. So it's got to be someone who I find really compelling. Well, he's gotten into some pretty serious scrapes and dealt out his fair share of revenge, but now his target is pretty serious. Is it a spoiler to say who he's going after in Out of the Dark? No, people know from the end of Hellbent, which is the last in the series, who he's going after. So Orphan X, just to do a little background, you know, was taken out of a foster home at the age of 12 and trained in an off the books program to be an assassin for the US government. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, he was disillusioned with the program. He left and basically became a pro bono assassin to help people in desperate need. And under that guise, he goes by the nowhere man. You know, the government's after him because he's got too much classified information in his head for it to remain attached to the rest of his body. So he's off the grid. He's always on the run. And what we discover at the end of Hellbent is the person who's behind the scenes was at the beginning of Evan's time in the orphan program when he did his first mission. That person was the undersecretary of defense, and he's now the highly corrupt president of the United States. So out of the dark, essentially, Orphan X is going after the corrupt president of the United States and we are rooting for him to succeed. It's not like you painted yourself into a corner by giving him, you know, ah, the hardest target in the world <laughs> to get to. You guys have no idea. I did, I spent all this time doing research with Secret Service and, you know, the traveling security details when the president is out of the White House and, you know, all of the procedures in place at the White House. And, and so I did all this research about all the impossible ways that it would be to try to get through this level of security. And I was staring at it. It was like the wall from Game of Thrones. I mean, I assembled all of it. There's a famous quote that says, write yourself into a corner and then write your way out of it. That's what it felt like. So it's exactly the process that you just made fun of me for. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on that same theme, these books are really tech heavy and, and it really feels earned. You obviously do some research, including some very cutting edge technology. I mean, Evan even uh, uses it at home. He has untraceable phones and a levitating bed. And what we want to know is, do you have a levitating bed? I don't have a levitating <laughs> bed. I mean, as you can see, part of my research is to talk to subject matter experts who make me seem smarter than I am. So my crass incompetence is covered by the help of other people, like far more sophisticated, intelligent than I am. And I look, I really rely on it a lot. I did, I did some mixed martial arts fighting um, before I wrote Orphan X to do some training very, very badly, you know, mostly a continuous process of introducing my face to the training mat. Um, <laughs> I went out and shot on every gun that Evan shoots. I have a friend who's, you know, a, a, a really brilliant Silicon Valley tech genius who can kind of walk me through the, how the hacking works. And part of what's helpful is actually the fact that I'm not an expert in all these fields. So by the time it's described to me and I put it in a language that I can understand and digest, 
then I can write it in language that is accessible to readers. Because you know, the goal is to not fall down and embarrass myself over something, but to keep everybody, you know, moving along in the story at the same time. Well, when when you're researching a subject like, oh, I don't know, assassinating the president, what kind of list do you think your name is on right it's now? It's so <laughs> bad, you guys. It's so awful. Um, <laughs> thanks for asking. Um, like, it's awful. I'm totally on every list imaginable, but I already was. I mean, because that's what I do all day is just dream up plots and mayhem. So I'm always looking up, you know, how to make an explosive device out of bathroom cleaners. <laughs> well, like you mentioned, uh, you've written many successful novels before Orphan X. And I've, I've always struggled with this as a writer because at some point you have to kind of leave a little bit of that older work behind, especially when you start a new series like Orphan X that, that has now sort of taken over your, your writing life. And I guess on one level, you have to assume that a lot of the Orphan X readers maybe haven't checked out your other work yet. How do you let go of those older books? And I guess at the same time, where do you suggest for readers to jump in when they start to seek out your older work? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, two books that are really close to my heart are Your Next and The Survivor. I mean, those are all starting points, but you raise an interesting question about leaving the other work behind. And there's a creative aspect to that too, more than just like a sort of sales and reading perspective. And one of the things is I wrote all these kind of Hitchcock everyman standalone thrillers. And there's a couple of things I love about those. One of them is you can pick up the character wherever you want and leave them off wherever you want, right? You're not worried about some sort of ongoing continuity. But the other thing that's really interesting in kind of everyman thrillers is the question of motive is up for grabs, right? So if someone's in the CIA or they're a detective or they're a cop or they're a U.S. Marshal, and the question is, well, why do they embark on this um, adventure? The answer is, well, it's their job. That's how the job arrives to them. And with the everyman thrillers, what was so interesting is I could play with different motives. Like, do they get drawn into the adventure because of envy? right? Because of curiosity. There's a lot of different ways that we embed something. And I brought part of that forward with me to the Orphan X series in that as the nowhere man, where he's, you know, helping people who are in desperate need, the phone rings. There's an untraceable 1-800 number that you can try calling, which is 1-855-TO-NOWHERE. And there's a surprise for you if you, if you dial that. The two is the numeral two. So, there, so, so the stories naturally come to him, but then there's the Orphan X stories of his past catching up to him. And so that's something that's that's a, that's more forced upon him than incoming. And then also I have stories from his past, like Out of the Dark opens with his first Orphan X mission when he's a 19-year-old kid conducting his first assassination. But then last of all, the biggest thing with Evan Smoke is that he lives among ordinary people like you and me. And so I wanted to write an archetypal character, but seat him in the real world. And we don't get to see James Bond go home. We don't get to see Jason Bourne have an awkward encounter and have to make small talk at the mail slots. And so the people who live around him, he can get embroiled in different stories and adventures through them in a way that involves a different set of motivations. And that's something that I brought forward with me from those standalone novels. Should we try and call the 1-800 number and see if it works? 8552. No, where? Now I'm mad at myself that I never tried this. Do you need my help? Where did you get this number? Listen very carefully to what I have to tell you. Your life depends on it. Before we can meet, it's imperative. I have to go. 
I'll contact you later. That's did cool. That, did that come through? Yeah, that, that is incredibly cool. So before I sold the book, I figured if I give the guy a 1-800 untraceable phone line that people who are like in horrible straits can call him to get help, I should probably buy the phone number. This was even before I'd sold the book, which is pretty cool. A lot of people haven't figured it out yet. I love that idea of actually buying the phone number and having that. That is, that's a great little uh, marketing tool. And I still, I am kicking myself that four books in, I never thought to call the number. Yeah, um, I've called that number repeatedly and I'm sort of like Lisa Simpson in that Corey episode now. I've just been listening to that over and over, falling asleep every night. <laughs> Do you need help from the nowhere man, Steve? Are you in trouble? Well, I just, I just want to let you know, Eric, that admitting you have a problem is the first step to recovery. <laughs> Well, from someone with a whole host of books under his belt to a debut author now. And this is someone that a lot of people are talking about. S.A. Cosby is the author of the new novel, My Darkest Prayer, which introduces us to his hero, Nathan Waymaker. So, uh, S.A. Cosby, thank you for joining us. And uh, S.A., this is S.W., S.W., S.A., so you guys can uh, know each other. <laughs> Thanks, E.B., I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we assume that everyone's first published novel is probably not the first one that they ever wrote. So how many half-finished or finished-and-then-shelves <laughs> novel do you have? Oh, man. I would say ones that actually have a legitimate plot, probably 12 or 15. Wow. Yeah. The, the novel that came on January, My Darkest Prayer, I had a hard time creating a crime novel um, using the tropes and the and setting that I wanted. And so I would start these novels with a private eye in the South or a private eye in a small town. Or, and I just could never make it work. But I'm also kind of stubborn, so I would stick with it for a while until I was like, all right, this doesn't work. And I just would put it aside. And so finally, it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I was able to finally finish one of these. Well, I, I think he did a pretty good job uh, creating Nathan Waymaker. He's a pretty kick-ass character. You know, he he <laughs> solves crimes. He he beds women, he, and he kicks a whole lot of ass. So, how much of Nathan is really just you? <laughs> well, like I like to tell people, and I Nathan is me turned up to eleven as I fantasize myself being in like a good pulp novel. <laughs> I mean, you know, I grew up uh, behind a uh, a juke joint bar down here in Virginia. I learned to shoot pool and fight in that particular bar. And so this southern milieu of what at that time was considered masculinity was something that I put in uh, to Nathan's character. But hopefully the readers will understand that he understands that's not healthy. So, Hey, uh, Nathan works at a funeral home. And so do you. So mm -hmm. be honest with us. Do we want to be buried or cremated? Uh, it all depends on how you die. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if, you, if you die in a horrible, horrible accident, you probably want to be cremated. <laughs> if you die calmly after eating a steak and taking a shot of whiskey and going off into the great beyond, you know, burial's fine. Eric, you had always said that you wanted to catch fire in a horrible accident as a way of going out. Are you revising that now? 
I, th- I think that was you who said you wanted to set me on fire after some of our <laughs> interviews. I look, you know, tomato, tomato, just answer the question. <laughs> well, um, speaking of cremation and burial, uh, how did you celebrate the release of your first novel? <laughs> <laughs> I had a bottle of uh, uh, scotch called Writer's Tears that a friend of mine gave me a long time ago. And she said, when you sell your first crime novel you know i want you to save it until you sell that first book she had a lot more confidence in me than i had myself because i i figured that bottle was going to collect dust for eons and um and so when uh the book came out i cracked that bottle open and that is some of the strongest scotch i've ever drank in my life oh my god it will put hair on your chest and your tongue is that your complicated way of covering up the fact that when you took that first shot you indeed started crying possibly <laughs> well, Sean, you recently shared a great story uh, about a relative of yours who uh, was not a very good reader, if he could read at all, but who shared books with you all the time. Well, I want to know yeah. what what was your family's reaction to you having being a published author? Well, it, it had it, it ran a range of of, uh, of responses. My aunt who uh, used to let me read her Stephen King novels when I was like 11, which I probably shouldn't have been, and that probably explains a lot about the rest of my life. Um, she was ecstatic. I mean, she was just ecstatic about everything. And then my mom, who has always sort of had this Downton Abbey uh, stiff upper lip, was uh, complimentary, but pointed out several errors in the text. And so <laughs> I, had a, I had a relative who hated it. Hated the book. Wow. It's so violent and so nasty and just so on and so on. I was like, well, did you read the description? I mean, (laughs) just asking. Mostly everyone's been super supportive and super nice. And uh, I actually had an article in our local Metro paper. And so uh, that's been pretty fun, too. So I've been uh, getting recognized at the local Ruby Tuesdays restaurant. So I can't eat my biscuits in peace. But... (laughs) You knew what you were signing up for relative to your biscuits. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, Eric, I really love that new author smell. <laughs> it's got to be better than the smell at the funeral home where Sean works. Or the smell of us old authors. Well, Steve, you know, we're back and it's like we never left. But the one thing I missed from our time away is learning so many great things from our guests. So what did we learn this time? Well, Steph Post taught us that you don't need to like eggs to own way too many chickens. Greg Hurwitz taught us it's important to surround yourself with people smarter than yourself if you want to make it in this business. And let's not forget S.A. Cosby, who left us with these wise words. It all depends on how you die. Special thanks to our sponsor, Rare Bird Books. Visit rarebirdbooks.com for a great selection of titles in crime fiction and beyond. And you can follow us on Twitter, at WriterTypes, and find us on Facebook. Please subscribe to the show, and while you're there, leave us a review. As always, this show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend. 